0: Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb.
1: And I'm Joe McCormick. And this is going to be part two of our first foray into the exploration of the wheel, the ultimate technology, the one everybody goes to when they're asked to think of an invention. Uh, The thing that they tell you, let's not reinvent, when in fact, people reinvent it all the time. And thank God they do.
0: The very technology that Anthony Zerbe was so down on in the Omega Man. (laughs) Talking about Why did he hate the wheel? I thought they rode on cars and stuff. Well, the wheel was for them. OK. If you haven't seen The Omega Man, based on um, Matheson's excellent uh, I Am Legend, it is a, a – Kind of a, a sad reworking of it. Yeah. It's a, it's a corny uh, Charlton Heston-led uh, – Just redundant, the yeah. sentence you just said. <laughs> 1970s um, – post-apocalyptic film in which Charlton Heston is seemingly the last human. And then you have these pale vampires that are ruling the night. uh, I'm a scientist. Exactly. He's a scientist. It's like Christ-like scientist battling the vampires. And the vampires like see the wheel as a symbol of everything that humanity got wrong. At at some point – It's kind of a shaky premise.
1: They tell him he stinks of oil and
0: electric circuitry. (laughs) (laughs) He did look a little oily in that, I have to say. Um, but uh, at any rate, but it, I, but it was corn oil, right? So yes, we're continuing our discussion of, of wheel technology. Uh, we're not quite as down on wheel technology as the as the future uh, vampires are. Uh, so let's jump back into our discussion. So how does the wheel and the wheeled cart uh, change things? How do these technologies change the world? Well,
1: one thing I would say is that the Legacy and impact of wheeled transportation has been much more profound in, say, the last four or five centuries than mm-hmm. it was for the, you know, most of the time wheeled vehicles have existed, their impact was less profound. Basically, uh, you know, they made it easier to move some stuff around in, in places where you could use them.
0: Right. And then ultimately, that that is one of the main advancements here is that it was for the transportation of goods and and people to a certain extent as well. Uh, you can also make, of course, the argument for the use of chariots in a military uh, scenario, yes. or, or the mo- using moving around, say, large scale siege equipment, etc. Yeah. Though, uh, though after the age of chariots, wheels
1: basically sort of fell out of use in a military context and were, re- were replaced largely by heavy cavalry.
0: Yeah, by by sheer horsemanship. Yeah. Now uh, another important the impact of the wheel is just the stimulation of carpentry. And road technologies like the – because that's something to keep in mind too. To have like a really functional, useful cart, Mm -hmm. you've got to have a a certain level of carpentry in play – for that thing to even exist. And then you're going to need to up your game with with roads so that you can get it all the places you need to get it so that it can actually transport goods and people or, you know, equipment from one place to the other. Yeah, Bullet writes
1: about this a lot about the, so he's got a section of his book where he talks about um, the fact that the wheel shaped the modern world and that these influences were highly contingent not just on the wheel existing but on the different types of wheels we're talking about. Like he, he explores how fixed wheel sets like the uh, early steam engine locomotive wheels and then axles with independently rotating wheels like we saw on the more versatile carriages and modern cars had very different impacts on the world. And he, he mentions road design. And so think about how uh, we were talking about roads in the last episode. When the first carriage roads Uh, came about, they were usually based on old roads that had been used for centuries by foot and animal transport. Whereas the first railroads had to be of a completely different design. They had to be built anew into the landscape for obvious reasons. Example, early trains with fixed wheel sets couldn't handle sharp turns or steep grades down a hill. And this meant that the landscape had to be altered to accommodate them to allow a train to pass through – Uh, And they also required the intervention of government authorities to help manage things like right-of-way and scheduling of use. And this was not originally the case for carriage roads, which, you know, eventually became automobile roads. But funny enough, a lot of aspects of the design of railroads were then later recreated when interstate highway systems and their worldwide equivalents like the Autobahn were born.
0: Yeah, just the idea that, oh, we're going to build a road from point A to point B. Uh, There's a hill in the way. We're not going to go around it. We're not going to go over it. We're going to go right through it. If that means building a tunnel, we're going to do it or we're just going to cut a massive uh, you know, slice out of that hill. Yeah. And we see this all over with uh, – certainly with our trains but also with our interstates. Yeah, but also avoiding stops,
1: avoiding sharp turns, mm-hmm. avo- you know, do- doing all that kind of stuff you would see in railroad design. But now it's to get lots of cars through all at once. Another story uh, Bullet tells about road design that I thought was interesting was about uh, this Scottish guy named John McAdam who was born in 1756 who came up with a new design for carriage roads. So you had a traditional way of building roads, which was essentially based on the Roman road design. You'd have like flat paving stones on top of a layer of cement that went on top of a layer of smaller, looser stones. This is great for foot traffic. You're, you you know You want to march a bunch of legionaries through – that's fine. But heavy carriages and carts with iron rimmed wheels would crush these roads. They would break the flat paving stones and ruin them. And at one point, even uh, the Roman Emperor Theodosius uh, set weight limits on wheeled carts. This was in 438 CE to prevent damage to the road systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, But by the 16th century, when carriages were becoming really popular in Europe, it was clear that an inverted design worked better. So you'd have larger stones or blocks on the bottom and then you'd cover it with smaller stones like you could use streambed gravel that could better survive the assault of wheeled carriages – but an even better design supposedly was this guy, uh, John McAdams, and this was roads paved with small stones, not tiny pebbles, but small stones that had to be of a certain small size and sharp edged rather than round. And uh, when it comes down to the size, bullet writes that, uh, quote, building supervisors sometimes put them in their mouth to check. <laughs> But the sharp edges of the stones actually mattered because that meant that when traffic went over them, it would pound the stones into each other and sort of compact them rather than pushing them out to the sides of the road as often happened with smoother stones. Hmm. And Bullet writes that uh, McAdam became known for insisting that the best way to make sure stones were the correct size and shape was to have a bunch of workers sit alongside the road and use hammers to break rocks. And this led to the common image of the chain gang of prisoners breaking rocks on the side of the road.
0: Huh, I had no idea. But of course, as we discussed in our, our road episode, it's not – the changes are not just to the way you get from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. They're, they actually change the cities and towns that you're traveling to.
1: Oh, they completely change it and they change urban culture. I mean – have you ever seen like old city centers from very old cities across the Middle East and North Africa where there will be the, the city centers there are amazing. they're They're gorgeous and they are not made with wheeled vehicles in mind. Mm-hmm. and it, it's great because so they've got like staircases in the middle of the city roads and they uh, they can be very narrow sometimes. Uh, Bullet writes that even some city like city roads in city centers have ladders in them. Mm -hmm. And this is fine, you can deal with this on foot, uh, but they're just not made for cars. And so the carriage revolution of the 16th century led to city designs with straighter roads, wider roads that were better paved, and with sort of regimes to keep obstacles out of the middle of the road. And this had a really profound effect on culture. Like, do you ever think about the irony of what it means to be street-wise or life on the streets? Like... I think what we use that to mean is being out in public mingling with people and strangers, right? Yeah. But that doesn't literally apply because like if you're, you're not mingling with people in the street unless I guess there's a festival going on or something. Like cars are going by. You need to get out of the way.
0: Maybe that's the one of the appeals of street festivals and, and probably like these various fun runs as well is that like we're you're retaking the street for what – They originally were used for, for for us to move around uh, devoid of these, uh, you know, murderous uh, uh, machine housings that we use all the time.
1: I mean traditionally streets in most cities are a place for people to walk and Mm -hmm. sometimes for people on horseback to travel. But also they're a place for public commerce. They're for the public square to take place in. So you'd have people in the streets mingling, talking, having public events, buying and selling things. And this changed somewhat with the carriage and then it changed a huge amount with the motorized car, the motorized car, with the car, you know. And I think you can see an inverse relationship between the amount of wheeled vehicle traffic on a road and the amount of public commerce, economic and social that takes place there. Bullet writes that without wheeled vehicles, quote, a street or lane can bring neighbors together instead of keeping them apart. That's kind of sad. You know, I I get kind of sad because when I see, like, kids in a neighborhood playing in the street, my instinct is they should get out of the street. That's dangerous. When what I really should be thinking is, like, we shouldn't be driving here.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a sad fact of – of, of certainly American history, where you see, for instance, railroads and other uh, certainly railroads, but also major streets uh, used as a, a divide between racial populations.
1: Yeah, and uh, or yeah, like uh, Bullet writes about that how railroads and highways very often did become like dividing lines for uh, along class lines, or along racial segregation, all kinds of cruel segregation that took place in the creation of modern cities. So while I don't really love what like cars have done to our cities, on the other hand, there are some really interesting ways that uh, – well, I don't know if you'd say this is for the better or for the worse. It, it's certainly just in at least a neutral way. Our way of thinking about the world has been largely changed by wheeled vehicles, and one of those is the arrival of standardized time. Oh, yes. Yeah, like without wheeled vehicles, we probably would not have standardized time because before, before trains – Different villages and towns would – you know, the clock – the main clock in the village might read a different time. People would keep a different general local time. It would probably be close to the same as other villages nearby but wouldn't necessarily be exactly the same. And on railroads, arrivals and departures have to be timed very carefully. And in some cases, mistakes in scheduling could even lead to like collisions of trains. So everybody had to be on the same time even at distant points along the track. So railroads have been – crucial in the development of the idea of standardized time across distance. I sometimes wonder, without, without standardized time, were things better or worse? Like, I'm sure people spent just a lot more time waiting around for things to happen or waiting around for, to meet somebody or something.
0: Well, this would, this is actually something I think we could come back to in a future episode, where we deal with standardized time and timekeeping, mm-hmm. and discussing, uh, you know, as we always do, what was it like before this innovation? What was it like in a in in a world without uh, rigorous timekeeping? And I think, uh, you know, there's an argument to be made that you still you still can go to places where you experience uh, something more like our our traditional, uh, uh, you know, uh, unaltered experience of time. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's as simple as going on a vacation or going— Oh, uh, yeah. There are uh, also—you know, there's an argument to that maybe certain cultures put less of an emphasis on rigorous timekeeping and other cultures put too much emphasis on rigorous timekeeping.
1: Yeah, like maybe rigorous timekeeping might uh, be—it might help the efficiency of your economy or something, but it might not be as psychologically healthy—
0: Yeah, I mean how – ultimately it is an exercise in how – the rate at which time is leaking out of your hands, right? (laughs) Uh, And how useful is that uh, across the board? Now
1: that we're talking so much about time, I also can't help but notice that I think of time as a wheel because the clock face is circular and the hands go around. It recurs again and again every day the same way a wheel spins. A wheel is sort of like an indispensable physical metaphor of, of tons of things that happen every single day.
0: Yeah, it's just an irresistible model upon which to interpret the human condition. Uh, And again, like the the unseen movements of cosmos and divinity and nature. Um, You know, the wheel is a symbol of cycle, of eternal return. Uh, Arguably a means of understanding the very way that... uh, you know, that early people understood the very shape of their lives, the the pan-Indian cyclical nature of time in which everything comes back around to the same place, a view carried on in Buddhism and Jainism. Uh, of p- particular note is the wheel of samsara, uh, which charts the movement of the soul through various incarnations and phases of life. And it's part of, you know, the ongoing effort to break free from the wheel and, uh, and to achieve liberation. We also see this in the you know the largely medieval idea of the wheel of fortune, the the rota fortuna, uh, you know, and this carries over to the into the occult as well. That the forces of fate are bringing us high and bringing us low again, and that there is a circular nature to how this works.
1: That seems to lead even to like the idea of a cycle of myth that functions as a wheel.
0: And then there are of course a whole host of other symbols used in various cultures around the world. They may not be a wheel per se or a circle per se, but there is some sort of, uh, uh, you know, like a spiral design to it. There's some sort of implied motion. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we already talked about the braking wheel a little bit, the, uh, just to drive home the idea <laughs> that no matter what the, the invention is, no matter what new spin we take on the technology, somebody is going to figure out a way to use it as an instrument of torture and death. Uh, that's just that just comes with the territory.
1: Now, let's not end on that sour note. <laughs> I, we should think about, so we've talked about four-wheeled carts and some of the challenges they face. We've mm-hmm. talked about trains, cars. We've talked about two-wheeled carts. We've talked about uh, the one-wheeled wheelbarrow. But if you really want to get down to like the true form of the one-wheeled vehicle, I think we should take one final look at something called the monowheel. Oh, I love these. I would love to ride in a monowheel. I don't know if I would actually because <laughs> it seems like it could easily end in, in a, a tangled metal death. Uh, but a, a monowheel, if you've never seen one, is a sort of experimental or novelty type of vehicle. It, it's not actually all that useful uh, compared to other types of vehicle, but it is a single-wheeled vehicle, sort of like a unicycle, but when you're on a unicycle, you sit up above the wheel in a monowheel, the driver generally sits inside the wheel. Mm-hmm. So think about like you're sitting inside a hula hoop frame, and then on the outside of the hula hoop frame there is a wheel, and you can power it somehow with I don't know pedals or with a motor. And obviously, because there's only one wheel,
0: this is going to be very difficult to steer. Doesn't it sound like fun though? It sounds like fun. I've I've seen I've run across a number of cool images of these. Uh, these vehicles. I've never actually seen footage of one in motion mm-hmm. or, or I assume one falling over <laughs> which if you it looks like something that would be uh, be easy to wreck. yeah, I mean I guess one way around that is like you could make the center of it
1: more of like a, a spherical cage mm-hmm. and then just have a single wheel that rolls on the outside. I think I've seen some designs like that.
0: I'm surprised I can't think of any science fiction treatments of this. Offhand. I'm sure they're out there, like some sort of a, a futuristic vehicle that is essentially a mono wheel, uh, because it lends itself well to that kind of uh, vision. I feel. I,
1: I know I've seen it in some sci fi movie, and I can't remember what it is. I think maybe one of the Men in Black movies has one.
0: Okay. Because it feels very Tron, but I'm pretty sure oh, they're yeah. not in Tron. I could be wrong somebody's working on the next Tron sequel, we'll
1: replace the light cycles with light monowheels. Yes,
0: please. and if you're not working on the next Tron sequel, please work on the next Tron sequel. I, uh, I would love to see another one.
1: Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more on wheels. And we're
0: back. Now, it's also worth noting in all of this that early notions of celestial mechanics, you know the movement of uh, of planets and, and the, the spheres, uh, you know some of the the models that were employed, say in in Greek antiquity, uh, certainly benefited from an understanding of the wheel, the mm-hmm. wheel as a, you know as a metaphor, as well, along with the geometric metric circles and spheres. like knowledge of these things uh, helped. Uh, the, the the minds of the day try and figure out what was going on in the observable universe.
1: Yeah, the one thing that's interesting is that the orbits of the planets. began to resemble true wheels more once we had an accurate understanding of like the heliocentric model of Mm -hmm. the solar system because when you had the geocentric model of the solar system, the planets didn't just go in a straight circle around the Earth. They had to regress and stuff. So you'd see them go across the sky and then go backwards.
0: Yeah, and as you move towards the heliocentric model – uh, then you begin to 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 see these things that are, to, to your point, uh, more like wheels. It's almost as if we, while
1: we were becoming better at using physical wheels within civilization, uh, more of our metaphorical models or physical models of the universe came to incorporate wheels, you know, the orbit of the planets mm-hmm. while slightly elliptical, you know, they're not perfect circles. They're pretty close to circular. Uh, uh, say that the, then the models that weren't perfectly accurate, but like the uh, orbit of electrons around the, the atomic nucleus and all
0: that. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, another area we see wheels utilized to uh, really, I think, spectacular effect are in various wheel-based creatures, beings, and artifacts from religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may have touched on one or two uh, other examples already, uh, but, uh, but uh, I don't think we even mentioned uh, the Old Testament uh, examples of say uh, you know the, the the vision from Ezekiel. Oh yeah, where he saw
1: the wheels and the the, the fiery wheel, the thing that got like uh, Eric von Daniken all excited. Yeah. All the ancient aliens people say, look, this story in Ezekiel. He talks about wheels in the sky. It's yeah. got to
0: be flying saucers, right? Yeah, and the cherubims <laughs> lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight and when they went out the wheels also were beside them now i want to be clear we're not advocating the ancient aliens theory here <laughs> no but you know because i've one thing i don't think you have to because as we've pointed out like the wheel was already established as this this thing in the, the human mind and 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 It's one of one of these forms you might turn to when conceptualizing, uh, you know, visions from heaven or the the will of the gods, etc. Yeah, it's one of
1: those Platonic forms. Almost, you would expect to see it turn up in visions. In fact, you could expect to see maybe wheels show up as alien transport in hallucinations for the same reason
0: in the twentieth century. Exactly. And well, they and well, they did. Now, another creature that I just mentioned mostly in passing here is the demon Buer. Uh, described in Johann uh, Weyer's uh, 1563 grimoire, Pseudo Monarchia Demonum. Sounds like a good read. Uh, well, yeah, if you're into if you're into summoning various uh, demons, it's uh, certainly a good text to pick up. Um, but. Uh, there, there have been various illustrated versions of these over the years, and uh, you know there are some phenomenal woodcuts that went along with these. But uh, the demon Buur is, uh, is is described as the great president of Hell. Mm-hmm. Now, like all these different demons have different uh, roles and positions in Hell. And this one's most notable because it looks kind of like a, uh, a, a an evil lion's head with, uh, what, five different goat legs kind of mm-hmm. rotating or it's like rotation is implied anyway. With the different goat legs poking out of him, he looks – you know, what he looks like is an overbalanced wheel, which I'll talk about in a second. yeah. Uh, some people might remember this guy because I believe he was also on a Black Sabbath album cover. Oh, I don't remember that. Or maybe it was an Ozzy uh, solo album cover. But at any rate, uh, it, it certainly has shown up in um, in metal iconography <laughs> a few times. <laughs> right. And then of course there's the there's the idea of the juggernaut. Uh huh. Uh, so this is, you know, in modern English, this word often refers to like a large impossible to stop force that's on motion or a complex machine, you know, like this company is a juggernaut or this uh, or I don't know, this football team is a juggernaut, you know, it just can't be stopped. Meanwhile, in, uh, in British u- usage, you'll find that it you know, is often... Uh, used to describe, say, just a large truck. Yeah. Uh, but all well, I, was, I would expect it to be someone who explores juggers. <laughs> what well, actually doesn't have any connection to the to those uh, word roots because it uh, it derives from 17th century uh, British observations of the wheeled altar cart processions at the Jagannatha Temple. Uh, in India. See that's so that's where we get it okay. juggernaut, Jagannatha. Um and, and this is basically just a situation where you'd have carts, uh, really ornate carts with the uh, with big wheels, and they would carry statues of, uh, uh, like, a, the Hindu deity, uh, Jagannatha, along with a couple of other um, uh, key uh, figures. And uh, they observed this, and there were even, like, these, uh, uh, you know, erroneous uh, accounts uh, from, for instance, the fourth, 14th century text, The Travels of Sir John Mandeville, which said that uh, Hindus would cast themselves before these great wheels as a sacrifice. But that's not true. Yeah, that's not true. It's just, just a... A parade, a procession of uh, of sacred altars upon wheeled vehicles.
1: Now, this is interesting because it kind of connects to the idea of the wheeled funerary carts we were discussing in the last episode where there were – Apparently cultures that didn't – there's no evidence that they used wheels all that much just for normal everyday work. But there might have been wheeled carts to like take a body to its final resting place. As it seems a similar kind of ceremonial or religious significance for
0: the use of the wheel. I wonder if there's something – I haven't seen this mentioned in any of the texts that we've been looking at. But I wonder if we're we're missing something very basic about the sacred nature of a wheeled cart just by virtue of it being everywhere and having been everywhere in human history for so long. But like if, if you are building a wheeled cart and say you're the first to do it, imagine yourself being the first to create this. What have you done? You've created an artificial scenario in which a horizontal uh, space is no longer set in in time and space, it can be moved, mm-hmm. um, which you know. This sounds like an you know, outrageous overstatement of the obvious, but <laughs> uh, but but if you think about it for a second, you really think, uh, and you you try and put it in a context where this is uh, this is not just an everyday occurrence, but an anomaly, like something that uh, an amazing invention. Uh, like think of the uh, you know the, the the metaphorical power of that, the religious power of that, the idea that like that which cannot walk, be it. Um, a statue of a deity or the body of the dead, uh, the, the entity cannot move, but we can move the ground upon which it is, it is uh, reduced. That's really interesting. There's another way to think about it, which is that because we
1: talked about in the last episode, there is no wheeled locomotion in nature, except you might talk about like the bacterial flagellum working kind of like a propeller. Right. Uh, But there is no animal with wheels. So you would never see this in nature. The closest thing you might see is like uh, a dung beetle rolling a circular pill of dung around, but that's not a wheel with an axle. So the wheel and axle moving a fixed substrate is literally in some ways like unnatural or other Worldly as a form of locomotion. And that might, I don't know, maybe I'm reaching here, but mm-hmm. you, you, the place where you see the disks wheeling around the sky, the sun and the right. moon, I mean, it's its easy to see how you could think of wheeled locomotion as this
0: otherworldly thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly in, in terms of just like a hor- horizontal space that is in that motion, uh, you know, you can look to rafts. Uh, certainly that would have, have predated uh, the, the, the cart, but still the, the wheels allow a raft to move across the ground uh, mm. with a, with, you know, rather smoothly depending on uh, you know, exactly what sort of wheel setup you're using. That is really interesting to think about. I think we should keep that in mind. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. Let's get rolling.
1: Now, one thing I was reading about that seems kind of interesting to me is that also uh, if we want to sort of like get into the realm of the unnatural to look at otherworldly types of wheels, perhaps the most famous design – For a supposed perpetual motion machine is known as Boxara's wheel or the overbalanced wheel. Now, I know we're focusing primarily on wheels for transportation, but Mm -hmm. I I think this is too interesting not to mention. Uh, We could easily do a whole episode, and I think we should in the future, about failed attempts to build perpetual motion machines. Because the the idea of the perpetual motion machine is sort of a perfect – test case where the earnest ambition or dishonest cunning of inventors and self-proclaimed inventors sort of crashes headfirst against the laws of physics. So who was Baksara? So uh, there was this guy, Baksara II, also known as Baksara the Learned, and he was a 12th century Indian mathematician and astronomer. He was a pioneer of the use of the decimal number system, and he was the chief uh, astronomer of uh, of an observatory at Ujjain. And the wheel model named after him is also sometimes described as the overbalanced wheel, as I said. The basic idea of an overbalanced wheel is that it's a wheel that is covered with shifting weights. And these could be glass tubes of liquid or they could be slots with weighted disks that can slide back and forth or they could be like metal balls on hinges. You've probably seen some form of this or another at some point. But the key is it's anything that allows a significant amount of mass to transfer from one side to the other of, of, this, uh, of these things that are all around the wheel. And on the overbalanced wheel, these weights are angled to shift so that one side of the wheel is always heavier than the other side or so that parts of the wheel on one side of the axle are always providing greater torque, which should, in theory, keep the wheel spinning forever, Right. But, Robert, I know we've looked at a few perpetual motion machines in the past. Never really seems to work out, does it? Yeah, it it doesn't quite work. Uh, Because, unfortunately, we now know that you can't make a machine like this. They're supposed to stay in motion forever without any input of energy from the outside – But we know this is impossible due to the law of conservation of energy, which says that energy is never created or destroyed. It just gets transferred from one form to another. So the wheel can't make its own energy. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is that you've got the second law of thermodynamics, which means that within a closed system, usable energy or order, such as the angular momentum of a wheel, gets transformed into unusable energy or disorder, which is heat. And no machine, no wheel, no nothing is perfectly efficient. There's always going to be some amount of usable energy like angular momentum that a spinning wheel just loses over time. In this case, the spinning wheel is going to lose its angular momentum to friction on the axle. You know, that turning around the axle, it's rubbing Mm -hmm. and it's heating up and it's changing that momentum into heat until finally the wheel just becomes balanced. No matter how hard you try to keep it – to design it so that it stays unbalanced forever – Eventually, it will balance out at its lowest point and just stop turning. And there's a reason patent offices generally don't grant patents for perpetual motion machines. Even if it looks really convincing, you know no matter what, there's a flaw in the design. Something is not actually working as intended. I should have looked this up before I came in, but I just wondered now, I wonder if there are like recreational engineering nerds out there who are constantly just trolling patent offices trying to get (laughs) perpetual motion
0: machines issued patents. Maybe, uh, maybe they're even listening to this podcast and they can can write in and let us know.
1: Yeah, if you have experience, let us know. Speaking of patents, I also came across an interesting story about wheel patents in a uh, Smithsonian.com article by Megan Gambino, where she mentions this story that around the year 2001, the country of Australia – They tried to put in place this new system for patent applications. They're like, okay, well, we'll make it all streamlined. We'll make it easy on the user, right? Mm -hmm. So they allow inventors to draft their own patents without the advice of legal counsel. And uh, so a patent lawyer named John Keogh wanted to argue that the new system for patent applications was flawed, and he did so by applying for and being granted a patent for, quote, a circular transportation facilitation device. Uh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) He apparently was issued a patent for his invention, the wheel. Oh, wow. I bet he probably didn't go get too far with that one, though, in terms of just, like, you know, trolling everybody and – and causing chaos, and you know, going no. out and insisting that everyone pay him royalties on his wheel. Uh, no, I assume this probably just showed that something was wrong with the system. Well, let's let's uh, let's talk a little bit about tires. What do you say, Robert? I am so ready to get tired. All right. Well, you know, uh, Scott Benjamin, the, the the great Scott Benjamin, helps us uh, with research for this show. Mm-hmm. Scott, of course, previously uh, co-host of uh, the long-running car stuff. Yeah, uh, which was, uh, I think, finally just uh, parked in the garage. Uh, what a year or so ago. Yeah, it's, uh, it's on hiatus uh, for, for the foreseeable future. But, but Scott's doing great stuff right oh, now. Oh yeah, he's, yeah. He's, yeah. Scott's. Busy with all sorts of grisly uh, happenings, <laughs> uh, but he also has all this wonderful knowledge about automobiles uh. and automobile history. So of course he brought some interesting tires uh, to our attention. Uh, one of them that I was particularly amazed with is uh, is the idea of the uh, the the roll the Rolagon tire. Yeah, these were really interesting. Yeah. So what you have with a rollagon tire is imagine. A steamroller, mm-hmm. and instead of like just a big uh, like the rollers, imagine instead of it being this this hard crushing uh, uh, material, you know, this big steel wheel. Imagine instead that it is this uh, soft inflatable substance, like right. a, you know, like a partially deflated uh, kickball. Uh, that that's that's about what the 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 Rolagon tire consisted of. The classic image of the Rolagon tire is an image of
1: its inventor William Hamilton Albee <laughs> yes. being joyfully run over by his own invention, and like giving a smile and a thumbs up while it's on top of him. Right
0: now, its primary uh, feature it was not that it could run over its own inventor without killing him, uh, but rather that you had, with these low pressure rollers you could roll across soft or uneven terrain. Right. And so the origin story to this is pretty pretty cool. It was 1935 and Albie was teaching in a small Eskimo village in the Bering Strait and he saw uh, some of the locals there using bags of swollen seal skin like like essentially seal skin balloons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were using these to hoist a boat out of the water—a boat that was filled with about four tons of meat—and roll it up a hill, right? Yeah, yeah. So essentially, these were like
1: wide tires that they were sort of like low-pressure balloons made out
0: of tough material. Yeah, so in 1951, Albie ended up adapting this concept using uh, nylon rubber bags on rollers. Uh, Goodyear actually uh, manufactured them uh, based on his plans, and the the Rollagon was born. <laughs> it does sound like a... Creature from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. (laughs) It does. Uh, The U.S. Army actually used these in Korea. It was was a successful concept, and it's still used today in some forms, but they were ultimately too expensive to make and certainly to to mass produce or to even mass market in a very specialized tire, uh, the Roligon.
1: Yeah, and I think it's a really interesting variation on the concept of a wheel or a tire because normally you want kind of narrow, high-pressure tires to reduce friction, and improve efficiency of steering and movement. Like, y- you might notice in your car that if your tires are running at low pressure,
0: it's a little bit harder to steer the car. Yeah, So, yeah, this is not the kind of thing you would take out on the highway.
1: No, 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 no. (laughs) But wider, lower-pressure rollers taken to the extreme here can be more forgiving when the terrain is undependable, right? right? They can just sort of roll over whatever. They're not going to get jostled around too much. And so a machine like this could never be built for speed or
0: for efficiency, but it's great for rugged environments. Now, another uh, design that Scott brought to our attention – the Tweel. Yeah, this is great. So what is Tweel is kind of what it sounds like, right? If you take a tire and a wheel uh-huh. and you remove most of the tire so yeah. there's just the T left. Well, you have a twill, modern airless radial tires that are used for generally things like golf carts, but also construction vehicles, lawn mowers. Um, basically, it's all rubber spoke, virtually little, no little to no tire. Or another way to think of it would be it, it, it kind of feels like a, a, a toy car's uh, wheel and tire uh, scaled up to, uh, to its like usable form. Mm-hmm. Um, another interesting take on the tire. This is. Been described as the tire of the future, the spherical Maglev tires, uh, and these were uh, these, uh, these were produced by uh, Goodyear, I believe, as well. Uh, the idea is that you have a tire and you transform it essentially into a sphere, and then you kind of use kind of a kind of something that's like a uh, computer mouse ball <laughs> uh, insert socket. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how you would line these up on the bottom of a vehicle, you know, four just like you would have four tires. And it would enable crazy mobility because you could you could you could really just maneuver this thing like an IKEA shopping cart. Yeah, it'd be you know? kind of like the casters on your office chair. Exactly. Yeah. So you could do like all sorts of amazing parallel parking. Uh, the sky's the limit. But of course, you'd also need a computer to help drive these things because, like an IKEA shopping cart, it could things could just careen out of control. Yeah. Um, and then you have to you know flee the store. Uh, but <laughs> uh, it, but yeah, and you'd certainly need a computer to help driving if you were doing anything other than just traditional driving if you had it in you know anything besides just sort of typical automobile mode but uh, the the other crazy thing about it is not only the, the spherical nature of the wheels but the car would essentially float above these tires via magnetic levitation thus the the maglev we talked about so it's just another example that Yes, we continually reinvent the wheel. We continually reinvent tires.
1: I want to see this episode lead to a revolution in everyday language. I think people should stop using the phrase, let's not reinvent the wheel. Not only because a lot of times when people say it, they're actually just like – trying not to get you to do something that is important. Right. (laughs) But also because it doesn't make sense as a phrase. The wheel is constantly reinvented. The wheel and the infrastructure that supports it had to be reinvented or we wouldn't have the vehicles we have today. It's ridiculous. Well, Robert, this has been really interesting, but obviously we've touched on so many things we're going to co- have to come back to in the future. I think tires, tires are are more fascinating than you might imagine.
0: Yeah, this is one of these inventions that really, I mean, it's not just one invention, it's multiple inventions, it's a legacy of inventions. And then spiraling off from, from it are all these different uh, divergent technologies and necessary, um, you know, supporting technologies. So, I, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure we're not done with the wheel yet. Uh, and, and neither is, is human civilization. Uh, <laughs> we are still reinventing the wheel um, constantly.
1: I predict that by 2050, all human civilizations will have transitioned to motorized pogo stick.
0: <laughs> well, wouldn't that be nice? It's hard to wage war on a pogo stick, one assumes. All right. Hey, if you want to check out more episodes of Invention, head on over to InventionPod.com. That's the that's the mothership for this show. That's where you find all its various uh, episodes and links out to social media accounts. If you want to talk about this this series uh, with other listeners, be sure to, hit, uh, to explore the Facebook group uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. That's where listeners uh, gather to discuss both episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, which is our other show, and invention. Uh, we're, we've already had some, some some delightful conversations on there, and we have merchandise now. By the way, if you're if you're if you're getting to where you really for invention for invention, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, we have, there's merchandise. If you have gotten to the point where you're you're digging the uh, the show enough, and you really like that snazzy logo that we have for invention, which I think is arguably. A cooler looking logo than Stuff to Blow Your Mind. You can now get it on shirts and pillows and stickers and, uh, you know, iPhone cases. Yeah, you can get a notepad with the logo on it in which you can jot down your own inventions.
1: Yes, that's where you'll do the design for your death ray. But it will be stolen by shadowy authorities from some government when your home is burglarized by the anti-death ray league.
0: That's true. That's always a risk. As always, (laughs) uh, we ask that you rate and review the show wherever you have the ability to do so. That is the best way to support what we're doing here. And subscribe, subscribe to Invention uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Huge
1: thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback on this episode, uh, with a suggestion for a future topic, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com.